to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast. I'm Jennifer Skeen. And I'm Viveka Morris. In the not-too-distant future, 12 years after the last non-cloned giant panda has died, when biobanks of genetic data are the sole remnant of tens of thousands of vanished species, extinction has become an industry unto itself. A market of extinction credits, vouchers granting the right to kill off the last of a species, has made the eradication of the world's biodiversity just another cost for companies. A cost that, thanks to loopholes and definitional workarounds, has become almost negligible. It's a bleak future that, in the hands of British novelist Ned Bowman, becomes the backdrop to an arresting, cutting, and devastatingly funny story of two people's quest to hunt down a very ugly, very intelligent, and very vengeful fish, the venomous lump sucker. Venomous Lump Sucker, Bowman's satirical, vivid, tour de force fifth novel, follows Karen Rassaint, an animal intelligence biologist, and Mark Halliard, an environmental impact coordinator for a multinational mining company, who each, for very different reasons, have a whole lot riding on finding any survivors of the eponymous species. Their mission takes readers across a northern Europe 15 or so years in the future, one that's been shaped by now crumbling neoliberal efforts to rein in species collapse and climate change. From a biodiversity reserve that runs on revenue from extinction credits to a floating city that's a regulation-free haven of biotech development, Versaint and Halyard search across set pieces at once both shocking and deeply believable. All the while, these two ill-matched, profoundly memorable characters debate the morality of human-caused species extinction and what cost or even penance we should have to pay for their destruction. With Venomous Lump Sucker, Bowman adds another triumph to his impressive literary oeuvre, For more than a decade, Bowman has been a singular literary voice, infusing humor into the darkest and most serious of stories. His debut novel, Boxer Beetle, won the 2010 Goldberg Prize for Outstanding Debut Fiction and the Writers Guild Award for Best Fiction Book. And he was long listed for the Man Booker Prize for his 2012 book, The Teleportation Accident. Venomous Lumpsucker has been critically acclaimed since its release in July 2022, described by the Chicago Review of Books as a gut-punching satire, and by the Washington Post as dazzling entertainment. We ourselves haven't been able to stop talking about this book since reading it, and we are so honored to have its visionary author joining us today. Ned Bowman, welcome. Hi, thank you very much for having me. To get started, we're wondering if you can paint a picture of the world your book portrays. What does society look like and what does the world look like at this point, 15 or 20 years from now? Well, yeah, it's meant to be 15 or 20 years in the future, although in the text, I avoid being too specific because I don't want to be called up on my predictions and which of them are too far in the future and which of them are too close and which of them uh, and never going to happen and so on. But yeah, it's meant to be about 15 or 20 years in the future. The idea is that the climate struggle has continued more or less the same, which is to say, kind of limply, not really confronting the problem head on, a lot of scratching around at the edges and kind of so-called resiliency and adaptation. So things are looking quite bad. We don't actually see much of the rest of the world outside Northern Europe. I think, I imagine in this world, there's some Mm -hmm. awful things going on near the equator, but 
Northern Europe, as I imagine it will in 15 or 20 years, is like still doing pretty much fine, although there are some disruptions and there's been some political turmoil, some of which doesn't actually have anything to do with the climate. And, you know, there are flying cars and Siri is way more intelligent, but the basic fabric of things is pretty much as it is today because I don't actually think things change that much in 15 or 20 years. Things won't be unrecognizable. So yeah, it's just meant to, it's very much meant to be today's trajectory uh, taken forward just a little bit. And can you describe the the system of extinction credits that are, provide the foundation for the book? This is a system that has already very much taken hold when the book begins. And as with carbon credits, the idea was gradually to reduce you know, supply of these credits. Uh, but as you describe in the book, there's been a, a whole lot of allowances, indulgences, uh, exceptions and delays that basically make this um, completely an, an ineffective system. But can you describe what the system is and what it was meant to do? Yeah, so the idea is that um, a few years from today, the very last giant panda dies as a result of a fungal outbreak that has been accelerated by climate change. Um, and because the giant panda is the Chinese national symbol, the Chinese are extremely obsessed about the lost giant panda dying. And they think something has to be done so that more tragedies like this don't happen. And because of the decline of the West and China's growing economic power, they're basically able to force almost every other country in the world to sign up to this treaty where uh, you can still drive species to extinction, but in order to do so legally, you have to basically submit a voucher, which is called an extinction credit. Or if the species has been certified as intelligent, um, which is obviously a contested term, but in the regulations it has a certain meaning, then you have to submit 13 credits instead because the idea is you have to disincentivize uh, eradicating intelligent species much more sternly than you disincentivize eradicating like a random weevil or whatever. Um, and yeah, as you say, the idea was that credits would get more and more expensive and scarce until uh, the free market decided it was actually easier to find cleverer methods of doing whatever you're doing that don't involve uh, driving species to extinction. But because the lobbyists and the lawyers have got hold of it, uh, the expected hike in the price of extinction credits never happens. So as the book opens, they're cheaper than they've ever been. And it's just a very minor cost of doing business. And in fact, because the extinction credit system has kind of replaced any local national laws that used to exist about this, it's actually easier at this point to drive species to extinction without a care than it is even in 2022 when, I guess, there are some like minor fences to stop you doing that. Um, so the extinction crisis has accelerated to a rate that, well, 
as with today, scientists can't quite put a number on it, but it's somewhere in the region of 10,000 species a year getting uh, permanently extinguished and it's pretty much all legal. Mm-hmm. And then at the, the start of the book, uh, the world community seems poised to even basically uh, create another sort of definitional vagary that allows an even more robust definition of what even constitutes extinction. Yeah, the idea is that people are finding it kind of unfairly strict that uh, just because it happens that you killed the last surviving member of a species, that means that species is extinct because, you know, this in the book is a period when people are starting to talk about uploading their consciousness or certainly uploading their pet's consciousness. So these companies are saying, well, I don't think I'm going to be dead after my consciousness is uploaded. So why are these species extinct just because their mortal bodies happen to have been torched? Mm-hmm. So the, the lobbyists are about to succeed in um, changing the definition of extinction so that if there is a very thorough digital record of a species in some kind of biobank, then it doesn't count as extinct, which means it'll be even easier for companies and governments to avoid getting into trouble for eradicating species because then they'll have the choice of either they can buy the extinction credit or they can just scan the animal and then it won't even count as extinct, so they won't even need to buy the credit. So they'll just have to work out which one of them happens to be cheaper and quicker, you know, that week, and then they can do either one that they want. We're eager to talk to you about the extinction credit system in in much greater depth. But before we go there, there are two main characters we referenced in the beginning in the book, Mark Halyard, who works for this extinction credit industry, and Karen Rassaint, who is an animal welfare scientist and intelligence expert evaluating this, who play very different roles and have um, very different sort of purposes and viewpoints. Can you tell us a little bit about each of these characters and what they represent and how you developed them? Well, so I I wanted two characters at the center of the book who were both very invested in the central endangered species, the venomous lump sucker, both very invested in it not being extinct, but for completely different reasons. So Halyard is a guy who doesn't really care about animals except dogs and just wants to get ahead and have a quiet life and ideally make some money to fund his extremely ritzy eating habits. (laughs) So he has pulled off this basically embezzlement scam but it's quite a complicated one which means that if it turns out that the venomous lump sucker is extinct then he is potentially going to jail and then Resaint I'd rather kind of talk around the subject of why the venomous lump sucker is so important to her because it is meant to be something that you slowly learn about in the book but Mm -hmm. basically the fact that well, for, for, from her point of view, the, the venomous lump sucker has a number of very uh, unique and singular qualities. The main one is that 
it's highly, highly intelligent. It's the most intelligent of all spe fish species. And not just that, but it is attentive to population size and its own population size, which means it could potentially have the intellectual potential to grasp that it is endangered, going extinct. And also the venomous lump sucker can potentially kill a human being. So I'm not going to explain exactly why, but if you add up those qualities, then for Resaint, for quite kind of dark existential reasons, the venomous lump sucker <laughs> becomes this kind of vital species in her own kind of personal moral journey up the hill of Golgotha. So she is also desperate for it not to be extinct, at least before she can get her hands on enough specimens to, to start uh, doing some scientific studies of it. I'm curious as to where the inspiration for that came from. And I was thinking of it a lot this past weekend because um, I, I run a program at Yale on animal protection and I was at a conference of animal protection uh, lawyers and advocates here in the U.S., and um, the conference was we're doing it. This is a, a slight side note, but you'll see the you'll see the connection as soon as as soon as I make it here, which is they asked us to do sort of a design thinking workshop where we we're supposed to brainstorm and uh, no, not shut down ideas and yada, yada. And to do this, they gave us an example. I'm not sure if the guy quite knew his audience in this regard, but of designing a they come up with ideas to design a theme park for ducks or kittens and don't squash <laughs> the other ideas of the people around you and then like go off into your tables and groups. And then we're going to report back to this big auditorium. And so we, we all go off and do this. And he calls on the first person and the, to share this idea. And the first person says, well, at our theme park, we have a game where the ducks shoot the hunters. <laughs> and the guy running the conference was like, all right, moving on to the next one. And the next person raises their hand and says, oh, and I should preface this with saying, we're also supposed to do this. I like what you did there. And, and so the person says, I like what you did there. And at our theme park, we have um, a station where the cats declaw the humans. <laughs> and, and at this point, the whole thing dissolved and we just like quickly moved on. And, and I could imagine him relaying this tale at the, uh, while he's giving this uh, yeah. same workshop next weekend at, to some corporate conference. But um, it was interesting because re revenge and this, need to, for, to punish, you know, what we've done for the other species was clearly at the front of mind, at least among this self-selected group of animal activists here in the U.S. And I was just curious as to where, where that emerged. Was that something that you think about? Was it something that you saw, you know, playing out in, in activism today and in, in the U.K. where you're based or elsewhere? And, and sort of what made you want to include that element in the book? Huh. I, I don't actually think that's something I've taken from observing other activists or anything that is something basically that has come internally from me like in the course of during the time I was writing the book I did quite a lot of travel and I had some pretty amazing animal experiences like I saw some dolphins for the first time I saw some amazing bat colonies and some monkeys and all kinds of birds and stuff. And I find animal experiences like that so moving and they fill me with such joy. And yet at the same time, it feels so wrong that 
the animal is, well, especially when it's a wild animal, the, the wild animal is gifting me with this joyful experience because I it just, there's part of me that feels like, well, I shouldn't be able to turn up and just blithely have a fun time watching you and you don't get anything out of it. And then I get to go home and tell people about it. It should be completely reversed. It should be, I turn up, you rip me to shreds and that's the end of my life. And you get to like feast on me. And that's, you know, because, because I've done nothing for these animals. All I've done is participate in a system which will chase them into a corner, narrow that corner, diminish and impoverish their lives until eventually we rub them out completely. And it just feels strange to be getting joy from an animal you hold that sort of moral relation to. And as I as is mentioned in the book, like that I feel the same way about the wonderful Jane Goodall documentary from uh, several years ago. Like watching that, mm-hmm. I was just so kind of devastated and tearful, feeling like, God, it must have been amazing to live in a time when you could look at these animals and not feel guilty. But when I mm-hmm. look at primates all i can feel is so guilty and i just feel like that that primate like ought to be here ripping my face off because like that's what we deserve as human beings for what we've done to them but then i should also say i've made only fairly limited changes to my own lifestyle it's not like i've like dropped off the grid to minimize my impact on the animals and i as i also say in the book what you know you could be become one of those people that sweeps the ground in front of you so that you never kill an insect but like I haven't become one of those people so in a sense that's what the book is about and in a way that's what all of my books is about the the awareness of participating in this terrible evil which goes against all of your values and then sort of sitting back and like not really doing anything about that fact and then and then uh how to live with that so so yeah to answer your question all all of all of that stuff in the book is is my kind of my own my own angst rather than anything i've particularly noticed uh in more committed environmentalists than me mm-hmm. well and as you just alluded to there's a, a distinction and a theme that runs throughout the book which is uh sort of the utility of animals for humans versus their inherent value. And the main metric that, at least in this extinction credits system, they value above other traits is animal intelligence. As as you already mentioned, uh, the more intelligent species, if a species is classified as intelligent, it requires 13 extinction credits uh, in order to, to have permission to drive them to extinction. Why is why is intelligence the metric and sort of what what is your own interest in in animal cognition and animal intelligence sort of touches both on, I guess, um, inherent species value. But clearly this market based system places some sort of other value on it. Can you just talk about, you know, what what drove you to to incorporate that as sort of the the main metric that you were focused on? Yeah, well, I should note, first of all, that it is necessary for the plot to work for intelligent species to cost more extinction credits than 
not intelligent species because the plot hinges on Resaint doing an intelligence evaluation of the venomous lump sucker. So that I kind of got to that backwards because like it just had to work like that for the story to hold together. But it is also true that the book, yeah, is a lot about animal cognition and the importance of that it is something I'm very interested in. Like I, I, in the book, the kind of rationale that I gestured to as in why at the birth of this system, they decided to uh, make intelligent species more expensive as it were than less intelligent species is because there is this feeling that an intelligent non-human mind will have a point of view on the world that no human mind would ever be able to reach on its own. So an intelligent non-human mind might have insights into the world that we can't get there without that mind. And therefore, it might have some instrumental value to us if we can hold back from driving it to extinction and then keep it around long enough to study and then eventually learn all its insights. And then, I don't know, after that, maybe we can safely get rid of it. And then also, I guess this doesn't come up in the book, but maybe there's some sense that like we also might eventually be able to employ some of these animals. You know, it's like using dolphins as what do they use them for? Like, don't they use them for like anti-submarine mm-hmm. mine missions or they use them to blow up enemy submarines or something or they've tried to do stuff like that. So maybe there's some sense of like, well, you don't want to get rid of an intelligent species because we might be able to like put those to work one day. But as Resaint muses in the book, this idea that non-human intelligent minds will have insights about the world that we can learn and kind of incorporate almost like something you read in a self-help book, that is a bit dubious because it's like, well, what insights have we really got from decades of studying orangutans or whatever? Like, obviously, they do have a unique point of view on the world and we've got insights into them, but have they given us any insights, you know, that we can profit from? It's not clear that they have. So like, how long is that rationale really going to hold up? And I, I, of course, do think that an intelligent non-human mind is an unspeakably precious thing that must be preserved at all costs, but not necessarily for reasons that can be sort of instrumentalized and incorporated into a profit and loss calculation or whatever. But even though this system is essentially based on a profit and loss calculation, Resaint, of course, ends up being glad that it does work like that because it does at least mean that some of these intelligent species such as the venomous lump sucker have been kept alive probably longer than they otherwise would have you know which at least that's good but then also in the book i do talk about like well just because intelligent non-human minds have uh 
this extraordinary value, it doesn't mean that the non-intelligent non-minds don't have a value, you know. Mm-hmm. So in the book, they talk about does does gonorrhea or syphilis have its own like special value that we have to preserve at all costs? Like obviously a microbe doesn't have a mind that we know of. It's not gonna have any insights into the universe, but like that shouldn't be the only metric by which we decide whether things are valuables and you know this is a lot of what the book not to make it sound too dry but this is a lot of what the book is about like are any of these metrics adequate to explain why these things are preserved they're all sort of philosophically problematic and incomplete but obviously just because they're all incomplete and don't really stand up that doesn't mean we should just be eradicating every species we want so you're sort of meant to end up a bit lost in this forest. But yeah, that's what the book is discussing. You said that, you know, the book hasn't changed necessarily, you know, how you conduct your life on a daily basis. But I'm curious whether you hope it will have a political impact or sort of an inspire action by others, or whether, you know, certainly it, it makes, a, I think, a very compelling and sobering case that, you know, markets like this are inevitable. We're already seeing things not quite in the way that you played them out, but biodiversity credits discussed in in the news in recent months and so forth as something that's emerging and whether you know you see you know obviously the book is a commentary on on the nature of capitalism as well whether you know when you think about what you would hope for for the future obviously there's this um uh incompatibility between what you described as the you know the flame that you reference in the epigraph of the book of these species have evolved for hundreds of millions of years through all of these improbabilities to, to be these you know, unique specimens that aren't able to be exchanged or quantified with another in any meaningful way. But lo and behold, that's this, what this capitalist system requires. So, so this is um, a long-winded way of asking whether you hope that the book will inspire any political action or whether you see it as mostly sort of predictive of what's to come. Well, I suppose if if the book is trying to make any kind of politically prescriptive point it's quite a narrow point which is i mean i can i can go off on a tangent here which is that i recently went with my dad to a day at where he works and the company where he works they do a lot of investment in europe so like it of course has been very affected by the war in ukraine And one thing I found so interesting watching people give presentations about their fields was just the kind of terrifying efficiency by which money can root around things. And sometimes that's good and sometimes it's bad. So, for instance, there's uh, this specific type of car part. Oh, I'm going to get the name of it wrong, but it's called like a car harness or something where like 60% of them used to be manufactured in Ukraine and now they're not anymore. So like, how do we build cars? Well, it's fine because money will always root around a problem like that. Money is like this kind of onrushing typhoon where if you try and put up a dam or 
an embankment, like it will just the 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 force of the water will find a way around it. So like now, of course, people are building these car things somewhere else, and they did they started to do that almost immediately that the problem arose, and that's good. That's good for us in our prosperity. But then equally, we're trying to sanction Russia and stop them exporting certain things, but money isn't interested in sanctions. It just wants to root around those sanctions. And money is incredibly good at doing that as well. So you try and put a sanction in place, but your, you know, righteous feeling and good intentions are never going to be any match for the kind of elemental force of money just trying to keep moving. And yeah, watching these people talking about like, you know, lumber and plastic and stuff and how and cars and how the war in Ukraine is affecting all of that. It really brought that home to me. But then that is sort of also what the book is about. So like, I don't think the idea of financial instruments to fight climate change is inherently, I don't know, a moral problem or anything. It's just that the problem is if you create a system like that, you are just throwing down the gauntlet to money to find a way to root around it. And that is what will happen. Like, of course, that is what has happened with the carbon credit system. And it means that you, as one bureaucrat or consultant, you know, I'm sure highly skilled and with the best of intentions, but maybe a little bit underpaid and overworked, are supposed to create this system which then thousands of people with a lot of ingenuity and greed and a lot of intelligence of their own and a lot of resources to try all different kinds of things are then going to try and subvert and root around and they will succeed because that's what money does and that's both like the upside and the downside of capitalism. Like, that's why it's so amazing and so horrendous at the same time. And, you know, as I say in the book, it's like, if you try and set yourself up in opposition to what money wants to do, which is what you're doing if you try and build, for instance, a carbon credit system, then it's like it's you versus the super intelligent AI. And the super intelligent AI is going to win unless you kind of capture it in this very small, very secure box. So I guess if the book is trying to make any kind of point that, you know, anyone with any kind of political power could I potentially learn from in my wildest dreams, it's like, sure, by all means, give it a shot, but you have to keep in mind from the very beginning that you are facing this wall of water and no matter how think clever you think you are building your dams the wall of water is going to find a way around your dam so like by all means try but at the end of the day maybe it would actually be, be better to make a law simply saying you can't drive species to extinction because something as blunt as that is maybe harder for money to root around, root around. Maybe that is ultimately going to work better than trying to like work with money to find a kind of context 
and a set of tools that money is comfortable with. Because if the money is too comfortable with it, then the money is simply going to find a way past it. I don't know, which, which is not to say maybe there are climate finance instruments which have done the job incredibly well. I'm not like actually that well informed on the current state of this subject. Although actually I've had a few emails from people who work in the field and they've all been like, yeah, you captured it exactly. Like all the way you mm -hmm. have it failing in mm -hmm. the book is the way it fails in real life. So my understanding is no, these don't, these things don't tend to work and they fail for quite predictable reasons. And please, if you're working at the EU or whatever and thinking about coming up with another one of these, please be very, very aware of that. I mean, I'm sure they are aware of that, but I don't know, some of the stuff they've done in the past feels a little bit naive. So who knows? Right. Yeah, I was going to say your your book really reads uh, in many ways throughout like a compendium of, of all of the potential pitfalls and ongoing pitfalls in uh, environmental policy right now, uh, you know, whether it's directly tied to a market based system or something sort of more indirectly stemming from it. And I was curious, just especially given your, your previous answer, how much you were really immersed in looking particularly at environmental policy as you were crafting this book and sort of developing these systems and, and how they're failing, or if these are problems that you sort of see tied to perspectives around market-based mechanisms generally. Well, so for instance, there's a detail in the book about how extinction credits are allocated to countries according to how big their economies are, because the idea mm -hmm. is it's unfair to ask a big economy to like completely stop driving species to extinction, whereas you can ask like Greenland to stop doing it because they don't have much of an economy. So there's no real reason why they ought to need to be eradicating many species. But the consequence of that is that if one of these big economies has a huge crash, then they still have their kind of legacy allocation of credits, which they no longer need. So then they could sell off those credits, which will drive down the price of credits across the whole market. And I had a friend read the book and he said, this is too far fetched. Like no one mm -hmm. would design a system like this. Like it's funny as satire, but it's so stupid. I don't think you should use it in the book. And I was like, that is a detail from real life. That's exactly what happens with carbon credits. So mm -hmm. in a lot of the former Soviet Union economies, for a long time, their allocation of carbon credits was based on some, I can't remember exactly what year the like metric year was, but it was, I can't remember, either when the Soviet Union was still intact or when it had only just fallen. So people were still thinking of a lot of these countries as having very vigorous industrial economies, you know, huge productions of steel and nickel and bauxite and cars and concrete and so on. But because all of their economies fell into such chaos after the fall of the Soviet Union and they were kind of, you know, looted and fell apart and nothing worked anymore and were just absolutely gutted in various ways. A lot of that economic activity 
just vanished and cratered, but they still had the same allocations of carbon credits. So they still had this huge surplus of carbon credits, which they had no reason to use anymore. And they were able to sell those to other countries which wanted to use them. And that held the price of carbon credits down for a long time, which made it very cheap for people to burn carbon, which was like exactly what the system was not supposed to do. So yeah, most of the details of how the extinction credit system fails or gets subverted, I just took directly from the ways that the carbon credit system has failed mm-hmm. or got subverted. Although I didn't like, you know, for instance, the idea of genetically engineering new species to get allocated extra mm-hmm. extinction credits, that is new, mm-hmm. of course. So the specific ways that the extinction credits interacts with the fact that these are, you know, animals with animal traits and habitats and so on a few of those and the whole you know futuristic biotech stuff a few of those i did come up with myself but basically like most of those details are true to life things that i just transferred from real climate finance instruments that have kind of you know not failed but like you know disappointed people in the past because they 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 haven't uh, led to the outcomes that they were supposed to. One of my favorite parts, and there are many favorite parts, one of my favorite lines in the book was when Karen Rassaint, the fish intelligence expert, um, is musing to herself that her own proposal for what she could do about this was to, would be to assign each of the 100,000 wealthiest individuals on earth a random you know, vulnerable species and then inform them if they didn't successfully sa- save their assigned species, they'd be executed by hanging. Um, and uh, and yeah. it, I, couldn't, I couldn't help but read that and think, you know, man, that would really work well. Like that's a great, like on some level, that could be yeah, truly effective, much more effective than this, you know, market-based system that we've set up. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a strong case for doing that. Of course, it's easy for me to say that because I'm not one of the 100,000 richest individuals on earth. But I think the moral case for doing that is very powerful. And the moral case against doing it is not as compelling to me. I have a colleague here um, at the law school named Doug Kaiser, who has um, proposed this idea, hypothetical idea of rather than having you know carbon offsets, what we should have is carbon upsets. The idea being that like rather than you know paying a, a fossil fuel company to stop flaring its natural gas, why not reward the activist groups who are engaging in civil disobedience to block the pipeline in the first place? And is there a way to you know work uh, into yeah. this market system a way of incentivizing like the whole carbon market? And carbon offset system that you've described is just fundamentally, clearly, from the way the novel plays out, failing to incentivize the dramatic transformational type of change that we need. And is there a way to, you know, harness that capitalist system and the system that we have to incentivize it better? Um, and I was thinking about that vis-a-vis Karen Rassaint and thinking, you know, oh, in this hypothetical world of extinction upset, uh, extinction um, credits in the future, could there be some sort of market mechanism whereby you could have a you know an extinction upset like the, that which she's you know attempting to engage in um, and have that be incentivized. But I suppose that's a that's a pipe dream in many ways. Yeah, but I guess it's a, it's a kind of difficult. I mean, I love that idea, but it's yeah, it's kind of a difficult interaction of sort of legitimate and illegitimate activity. It's a bit like you know when it says in the tax code 
that you have to pay taxes on stolen goods or whatever. Like <laughs> if you were yeah. a climate activist blowing up a pipeline, how do you then come forward mm-hmm. and claim your credits? But I mean, I don't know, maybe some very forward looking state could go rogue and say, well, if you blow up pipelines in the US, then you can come here where there's no extradition treaty mm. and we'll give you some credits because, you know, any any carbon atom is is global. So there's no reason. So we care about what happens in the US as well. Mm-hmm. Related to the the theme of animal intelligence, your book also touches a lot on artificial intelligence, and you've already alluded to this with the the quote that free market mechanisms themselves are like a malevolent AI, as Rasaint sort of muses at one point in the book. Elsewhere in the book, you you have Rasaint thinking about the fact that artificial intelligence was sort of meant to elevate the human species, but in many ways, uh, our minds are now uh, decaying out of intelligence, even as we're you know getting more and more sophisticated with with AI. How does AI factor into your book, and and what do you think work on AI has to tell us about personhood and animal intelligence? Well, I think one of the reasons. I brought in AI to the book, which just because I wanted to draw this analogy that hits home for me so often, which is that throughout the 20th century, there were people saying animals aren't conscious, animals can't feel pain, animals can't, you know, make plans or come up with schemes. And then slowly the data would come in and they'd be like, okay, well, maybe they are conscious, but they definitely can't do this. And then there would be some animal doing that and they'd be like, okay, well, maybe they can do that, but they definitely can't do this. And then an animal would be observed doing that thing and they'd be like, okay, okay, okay. They can do those other things, but we all agree they definitely can't do this thing. And then an animal, we find an animal doing that thing. And it's it's just like, I, I look at that and I'm like, how stupid do you have to be to get proven wrong over and over again? Don't you see that this is going in a certain direction? Like, even if you privately think, well, these discoveries are going to stop at a certain point, don't you think it's a safer bet to stop making these claims about what no animal will ever be sane to do? Because every previous person who's made claims like that has turned out to be wrong. And I feel exactly the same about AI. I think there's such a strong parallel that... All the people being like, well, no computer will ever be able to do this. Well, okay, there is now a computer that can do this, but no computer will ever be able to do this. And then the timeline just accelerates and accelerates. So like Mm -hmm. even 10 years ago, I was on a panel with quite a prominent philosopher of mine saying like, well, you know, fine and AI can beat people at chess. They might have their little tricks and gimmicks, but they can't, you know, if you teach an AI to play chess, all it will ever be able to do is play chess. It won't be able to learn other games. And of course, now we do have AIs where you teach them one game and it can learn other games. And frankly, I feel the same way about people now saying like, well, you know, okay, chat GPT is very impressive, but of course it will never replace the human heart and the human spirit, and there will never be AI novelists or whatever. Whereas 
it just seems so obvious to me that within my lifetime, my so-called skills will become essentially redundant because <laughs> AI will be able to do it all. And like, this has just been, seemed perfectly obvious to me literally since I was a child because I grew, grew up reading so much science fiction. And I, I just find that parallel so interesting, this kind of human chauvinism about like, oh, our minds are so unique and there's something in the quantum nanotubules in our neurons or whatever that allows us to, I don't know, tessellate shapes or imagine the future or do meta thinking or whatever it is that is supposedly unique to us that no other mind will ever be able to match. But I think in the universe, there's a whole spectrum of other minds. Some of them are probably in clouds of cosmic gas. Some of them are in fish. Like some of them are on a server at Microsoft somewhere. And they can all do different selections of things. And by the way, you know, some of them are human. Like there are living human beings who lack certain capabilities, but have others in probably in ways that like we don't understand at all because they aren't able to communicate that to us. There's a whole rainbow of different minds in the universe. And it's just, you know, it's like, it's like one of those scatter graphs, like the, it's a kind of N dimensional scatter graph. Like the, the minds are in different places on the graph, but there's, there's no, there's no pyramid where human beings are at the top. Like we're not even going to, the idea that we could ever be at the top is an illusion, I think, that it's only going to last about 10 more years. So, yeah, and one of the big themes in the book is other minds. And I wanted to talk about AI because I wanted to just discuss this kind of continuity through, as it were, this scattergraph of other kinds of other minds and the other insights that they might potentially have for us or potentially might not, because actually we can, with our very, very limited minds, we can never get a proper insight, you know, into what their minds are like. And then, yeah, I just wanted, I wanted to talk about AI because I genuinely do believe that after the human race has gone extinct, the AI that we create will probably still be around. So I wanted to give it this sort of cosmic sweep, both in space and in time, and even the kind of micro sweep on our planet of like how the oceans might as well be a billion miles away and how the upper atmosphere might be a billion miles away and how even the Amazon in many ways might as well be a billion miles away because of how little we understand what's going on in these places. So, yeah, I just wanted to, to give the reader the spectrum of all the other different kinds of minds so that, at least in the book, we're thinking of human minds as just one point on the graph, not as the definitive thing against which all other minds will be measured. But then also on top of all of that, it's just like it's set 15 years in the future and AI will be the defining mm -hmm. thing of the 21st century. So it's like if you're writing a book set in the future, you kind of have to address what AI is going to do to the world. Otherwise, it will very swiftly feel out of date, in my opinion.
One of the epigraphs that you include in the book is a, from a poem by W.S. Merwin, For Coming Extinction. And this, for anyone who doesn't know, is a poem addressed to the gray whale that sounds as if um, you know, Merwin is atoning for the loss, promising this gray whale that it will have company among the other extinct beings. Um, and the, the line you excerpt is, I write as though you could understand and I could say it. One must always pretend something among the dying. And then the end of the poem ends with tell him how important we are, really underscoring you know, mankind's arrogance and arrogance that hastened this extinction um, that you speak about. And I was curious if you could speak to why you chose that quote. And when you look at it and see, you know, one must always pretend something among the dying, how would you describe what it is that we're all pretending? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sorry to say I don't read very much poetry, so I wasn't familiar with W.S. Merwin until I was some way into writing the book and I started, you know, reading a few poems about extinction and I found that one and I was just stunned by how well it's summed up and kind of anticipated the themes of the book, which is, you know, it's like if someone tells you they have terminal cancer, you want to say to them, God, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. And if someone and if someone says to them, says if someone tells you they have terminal cancer and you've given them the terminal cancer, well, God, what do you say? But you want to say something, but we're in that position with the animals and we can't even say anything to them. Like we're kind of at their deathbed and we've put them on the deathbed. And as human beings, surely in that position, we feel this just incredible pressure to say something to like make some kind of apology or some kind of vapid, consolatory remark or just acknowledge something, but we can't because we can't talk to them. All we can do is kind of look them in the eye and know that they don't even know quite what is happening. Only we know. And like, I felt, I felt like the book just, I mean, the poem just summed that up so well that that feeling you would have at someone's deathbed, like wanting to say something, feeling this guilt, and yet there just being no possible outlet for that, like no way to make amends, no catharsis, no way to resolve that emotional state and just like, what can you do? You have to, well, you have to weep or you have to lie to yourself or you have to go and, I don't know, hang yourself in the corner or whatever, like it's just an emotion that we have no way of processing. I mean, I say we, like some of the people who read the book have said to me, I don't feel like that. Like, it's sad that (laughs) some of these animals are going extinct, but the ones that I'm never going to see and that don't really do anything for us, I don't actually really care about that, which I think is a perfectly valid point of view. And that's why that point of view is there in the book, like, I think that is a perfectly morally consistent and defensible point of view to actually not be that sad about it. So, of course, not all of us are roiled by that kind of emotion, but 
those of us who are, it's like, yeah, what the hell do we do? And I actually, you know, it has, you know, I say this humbly, it has been really nice seeing that the book does seem to have struck a chord with some people. And I hope uh, part of that is because I've tried to articulate this emotional bind that a lot of us are in if we really care about this stuff. And of course, I'm not trying to give answers because it is, there are no answers. Like there's no, there's truly nothing we can do. There's no, there's no way to process it or move past it. There is no catharsis or epiphany. It's just the situation that, uh, that we're all landed in. And yeah, the, the, the Merwin poem sums up so well. The book is profoundly moving and absolutely, you know, struck struck a chord with with us as well. But one of the really remarkable things about your writing is that we've been talking about all these moral subjects and philosophical subjects, but this is all wrapped up into a book that is propulsive, that is deeply funny, um, that is exciting and, and has just incredible characters. And I'm wondering if if you wouldn't mind reading a short excerpt from the book. Sure, yeah. Uh, well, we've been talking a bit about these two characters, Resaint and Halyard. Just as a reminder, Resaint is basically the one who does care about the animals and Halyard is the one who doesn't. And, well, yeah, I want to echo what you said. What I've been trying to tell people promoting this is that, like, although on one level it is a book about the failure of global climate finance insurance, it is a comedy. So, like, hopefully it's not as dry as it can sometimes sound. But anyway, yeah. So, and then quite a lot of the book is a debate between these two characters about essentially what is the uh, moral way to species extinction, which again, sounds pretty dry, but I do try and, I do try and write it as a comedy. So yeah, it's... It, dry is definitely not an adjective I would use for this book <laughs> by any means. Well, good. Yeah. So yeah, they have they have this ongoing kind of conversation that runs through almost the whole book, and I'm going to read a little bit of that conversation. Yeah, when they're talking about whether we should feel distraught at the extinction of some obscure species that has no role in any human life. You really don't believe that anything can have a value of its own, Resaint said, beyond what function it serves for human beings. Value to who? Halyard said. So Resaint asked Halyard to imagine a planet in some remote galaxy, a lush, seething, glittering planet covered with stratospheric waterfalls, great land sponges bouncing through the valleys, corals budding in perfect niveous hexagons, humming lichens glued to pink crystals, prismatic jellyfish breaching from the rivers, titanic lilies relying on tornadoes to spread their pollen. A planet full of complex, interconnected life, but devoid of consciousness. Are you telling me that if an asteroid smashed into this planet and reduced every inch of its surface to dust, nothing would be lost because nobody in particular would miss it? But the universe is bloody huge, Halyard said. Stuff like that must happen every minute. You can't go and strike over it. Honestly, it sounds to me like your real enemy isn't climate change or habitat loss. It's entropy. You don't like the idea that everything eventually crumbles. 
Well, it does. If you're this worried about species extinction, wait until you hear about the heat death of the universe. I would be upset about the heat death of the universe too, Rosaint said, if human beings were accelerating the rate of it by a hundred times or more. And if a species position with respect to us doesn't matter, Halyard said, you know, those amoeba they found that live at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, if they're just as important as Choo Choo or my parents' dog, even though nobody ever gets anywhere near them, if distance in space doesn't matter, why should distance in time? If we don't care about whether their lives overlap with our lives, why even worry about whether they exist simultaneously with us? Your favourite wasp, Adelo Midgi Midgi Adelognathus Marginatum, it did exist. It always will have existed. Extinction can't take that away. It went through its nasty little routine over and over again for millions and millions of years. The show was a big success. So why is it important that it's still running at the same time you are? Isn't that centering the whole thing on human beings, which is exactly what we're not supposed to be doing? I mean, for that matter, reality is all just numbers anyway, right? I mean, underneath, that's what people say now. So why are you so down on the scans? Hacks aside, why is it so crucial that these animals exist right now in an ostensibly meat-based format just because we do? My point is, you talk about extinction as if you're taking this enlightened, post-human view from nowhere, but if we really get down to it, you're definitely taking a view from Karen Resaint, two arms, two legs, one head, born Basel, Switzerland, year of our Lord, 2000 and whenever. But Resaint wasn't listening anymore. Look, she said, pointing out of the front window of the boat. That was perfect. We have two final questions for you, Ned. One is, um, what are you working on now? Are you continuing to think about and work on the questions related to animals in particular? And then second, and I know from looking at your your blog that you have many film recommendations on there, but we like to ask each um, each of our guests that, to, who come on to speak about you know two or three um, books or films that have particularly influenced their work. And I'd be curious as to what you would recommend with regards to Venomous Lump Sucker in particular. Sure. Well, um, you know, so since I wrote the book, lots of people have been emailing me articles about species extinction or climate change or whatever. And the unfortunate thing is, once I've written a novel about something, I basically never want to hear about it ever again. So, for instance, <laughs> after I finished my second book, which was about Weimar Germany, people would send me articles about Weimar Germany and I'd be like, I don't care about this. Don't send me this. That part of my life is over. I mean, I still like talking about the book, of course. I still find these questions interesting, but I basically completely stopped reading it because I feel like in my life, this book is the thinking I wanted to do about it and the conclusions I reached. Mm -hmm. And I spent a few years really immersed in quite a sad topic. So I'm not really immersed in it anymore. And the my current book is completely different it's all set in the present day and it's kind of about the british political establishment and like animals aren't gonna come up at all although you ask whether i am still like investigating the question of animal cognition yes i am because i have a dog so every day i am <laughs> like conducting an ongoing inquiry into my dog's tiny brain and I really enjoyed your 
Alexandra Horowitz episode because I love her stuff and I just love, you know, I love thinking mm-hmm. about She's uh, how animals think and how my dog thinks. So obviously I'm never going to completely abandon that field, but I'm not f- following up on venomous lump sucker in any significant way. Although, you know, I wouldn't rule out coming back to it in a few more novels. And then the recommendations. I think that the, the two books that I recommend that are sort of especially relevant to the writing of this book, I'll do one nonfiction, one fiction. The nonfiction one is this book called Flight Ways by Tom Van Duren. Mm-hmm. It's a, I read quite a lot of books about extinction, obviously, when I was writing the book. And there's lots of wonderful ones. Like, obviously, I love Elizabeth Colbert's work, like in The New Yorker and in her mm-hmm. books, you know, reporting on extinction. But in terms of the philosophy of extinction, Flight Ways is is probably the one I got the most insights out of. And it's it's a really good combination of, you know, specific case studies of, well, it's all about birds. So it's about specific endangered birds and the situations they're in with the kind of broader musings on what exactly extinction means. And certainly in the idea in the book that the very definition of extinction could be sort of contested for better or worse was inspired by Tom Van Duren writing about how like extinction is a more complicated thing than just like the instant at which the final specimen's heart stops beating or whatever. So I'd really recommend that book and also, you know, he'd be great on the podcast. Um, And then the novel I'm going to recommend is not about climate. But it is about capitalism and kind of systems and human folly. Uh, It's Red Plenty by Francis Bufford, which is a novel about the Soviet Union's attempts to build a kind of dynamic, even cybernetic economic system that would work as effectively as capitalism in terms of sending signals about what people want, what to build, what to buy, what to sell. Um, And it was a real inspiration for this book because, yeah, it's people have talked about it as hybrid fiction, nonfiction. It is a novel, but there's just paragraph after paragraph of detail about how Soviet economics worked, which probably to some people is boring. I loved it. And I know that's partly like it's a cliche that men, as they enter middle age, like stop wanting to read about characters and their emotions. They just want to read about systems (laughs) and the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany and like trench warfare and stuff. So in a certain way, I'm like just living up to the stereotypes there. But I love, yeah, I love reading about all of that stuff. And like, I don't see what there's any reason why that kind of thing can't be in a novel. Like, I love reading Wikipedia pages and I love reading New York, New Yorker articles. Why can't a novel be a mm-hmm. bit more like a Wikipedia page or a New, New Yorker article? And Red Plenty, there's no other book like it really. It is an amazing, it does an amazing job of, it does kind of read like a series of really engaging New Yorker articles that you you somehow you're guided through by some quite vivid 
characters. And that, I felt like, kind of gave me permission in my book. You know, I said it's not dry. It is dry in some ways. There are pages and pages about like economics and bureaucracy. But like in, you know, I felt like if I were reading it, I would find it interesting. And I feel like Red Plenty gave me permission to do that. But like I said, I think it is sort of relevant to climate and animals in the sense that it is about if well-intentioned, intelligent human beings get together to build a system to accomplish a specific aim, they can come up with some very clever stuff and they can achieve some amazing things, but it can also fail in completely unexpected ways. And also it can fail uh, with a lot of human cost and suffering along with it. So I think I, I think it is relevant to a lot of the things we've been talking about, as well as just being a very, very enjoyable, beautifully written novel. I'm sold. So I think I found my next book. Um, Ned Bowman, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you too to Ryan McAvoy, the Yale Broadcast Studio, and Daniel Block for their work on this episode. When We Talk About Animals is supported by the Law, Ethics, and Animals program at Yale Law School. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, write us a review, and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about Ned Bowman and his book. Thanks for listening.